going to be in Psalm 39 this morning. Take your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 39. You know, um, the title of this morning is Since Life is Short, What Can I Do? And David writes a psalm uh, according to that. It seems that no matter how big and strong a person might be, uh, that any one of us at any time could catch a little microscopic bug in our breathing, in our eye, and we could succumb to uh, an illness, and it could take us down even to the point of death. We've talked about this in the past. A small microscopic thing can do that. Also, things help me to realize that life is short by being vulnerable to disease, as I just mentioned. It seems like every new year seems to roll around faster and faster. My kids are having kids now. I mean, life is just passing by so quickly. What can I do to make life have some meaning? What can I do to make my life count for something? I believe that's what David wrote to us in this psalm. He's going to give us some hope and some answers. Because life is short, there are some things that we can do because we want to make an impact. We want to make sure that our life is uh, worthwhile and worthy of living. And so let's stand together and read Psalm 39. We'll begin in verse 1. The Bible says, and David writes, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Selah means consider this. Let's pause and consider that. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see our life, Lord, as you see it. Help us to make an impact in your kingdom while we live in this world. Father, forgive us our sin. And Lord, show us today from your word how we might live a wholesome and beautiful life in your sight. And I pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Since life is short... What can I do? When I say that short, at the end of verse 4, David says, Let me know how transient I am. Short-lived, right? How brief my life might be. In verse 5 and in verse 11, he mentions it as a breath, simply a mere breath. James writes in his book in chapter 4 that our life is like a vapor. It appears for a moment and then it is gone. Throughout the scripture, uh, the Bible refers to our life as grass that is fading and withering away. Comes up with the sun and then at the end of the day it fades and withers away. Because life is short, right? We want it to be meaningful. The only way, David discovers, for our life to be meaningful is to live it towards God. So, what can I do? In order to live my life towards God, he gives us some information here. You know, something's happening to David. Look in verse 10. We did not read that, but I want you to look at it. 
Verse 10 says, Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. David was having an illness. David was under the conviction of sin, perhaps, and his sin was overwhelming him. Maybe David was just referring to the sin of mankind and that we are hopeless under that curse that happened back in the Garden of Eden. Whatever the reason, illness, sin in your life, or the sin of mankind in general, we all face the reality that we are hopeless without God and that we need God to impact us. Job said something very similar in his letter that he wrote to us. If I have it up here on the screen, where'd it go? There it is. Job wrote this, I waste away. I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me? You know, Job was under great problems beyond probably anything that you and I have ever faced. And yet, him and David both understood that scoffers were waiting around the corner to ridicule them and to make fun of them and to downplay God in their life. Both of these men wanted more than anything to lift God up in their life. And when things happened that went against that thinking... They knew that the scoffers would be waiting and the mockers would be there and they would be pointing fingers and saying, where is your God now? And this and that and and trying to disprove God in the life of these two men. But David says at the beginning of what we just read, I kept my mouth shut. I didn't speak out. It was burning inside of me, but I didn't say it. Right? God, what is happening? What, why are you letting this take place in my life? David says, I understand that I am short-lived in your sight. So my point, or at least the first, is this. Life is short. Amen? If you think about it, it's very short compared, as David does, to eternity. So what I need to do is to learn the lesson from the suffering that God's allowing in my life. God has a plan and a purpose for the trials that you go through. Some of those trials may be self-imposed. Maybe the majority of them. But there are others that you have done nothing to wind up in the situation that you find yourself in. And so what can you do? You go to him. You, you learn what he's trying to teach you. You submit your heart to his discipline. You, you speak to him about it. You are, are uh, evident in front of him that you understand that he's teaching you and that you're going through things. David just prayed a, a very simple prayer that he would not forget that his life is short. And God, please let me honor you with my life. That was David's goal. That was Job's goal. Certainly, I pray this morning that that is your goal. He says in verse 5 and 11 that his hand or his life is like a breath, meaning that it is empty, it is vain, it is like chasing after the wind, 
A picture for us today would be children chasing bubbles. And when they catch one, it bursts in their hand. Life is like that. It comes and it goes quickly. What can I do? There's no substance to life. David compares his life to eternity. Look in verse 5. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. I know we all remember when we were 20 years old that a person in their 80s or their 90s was way old. Way old. Now that we're in our 80s and 90s, that's not so old anymore, is it? But time just keeps rolling on, and it doesn't stop. There's no timeouts. Time out, God. Let me catch up. Let me, let me feel better. Let me do something. Time just keeps moving. So David compares his life with that of eternity. When life is viewed in that way, then we can see how our life is transcendent. Our life is short. Look on the screen. There's a picture of the Milky Way galaxy. And you notice the yellow in the center says the sun. That's our sun. Okay? The light in the middle of the galaxy is not our sun. Our sun is the little dot out here between these two arms in our galaxy. We're not even in the middle of our own galaxy. That's how small we are, right? Our whole solar system is wrapped up in that one little spot that says the sun. It would take us 20 million light years just to go across our own galaxy when there are multiple galaxies in the universe. David says, what is man that you would even think of him? Amen? What am I, God, that you would even consider me? And what am I that you would even think of me? David compares his life to eternity, and he realizes how short life really is. David prays in verse 4, Lord, make me know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how short-lived I really am. If my life's going to have an impact then I must live it toward God and not toward myself. My life is short when I look at it from the side of eternity. My life is short when I look at it from the side of death, right? I know in Christ we don't die spiritually, but we all do die physically. Our body will stop working. Our body will come to an end. And so at my death, all that I've done in my life comes to nothing. Oh, I may leave something for somebody else. Here's what David says about that in verse 5. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Verse 6, surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Right? We can work hard to make and to amass things in our life, but guess what? We all end in a coffin. Our life will end in a coffin and we can take nothing with us. So my life is very short when I look at it from the side of death. It's coming. It's close. 
Closer for some than others. What's the point then of all this frantic activity in life? If I cannot escape death, why do I live like I can? A Baghdad merchant in Baghdad sent one of his servants to the market to purchase something for him. And when the servant got to the market there in Baghdad, he turned the corner and there he was face to face with Lady Death. He was shocked. He turned around and he ran back to his master and he told him what happened. He said, please give me a horse, a fast horse, and let me ride swiftly to Samara. And so the Baghdad merchant granted his servant's request and off he went on a fast horse to Samara. Now the merchant had to go to the uh, market to buy what he was looking for and he got there and he turned the corner and there was Lady Death. And the merchant said to her, why did you startle my servant a while ago? And the lady death said, he was startled, I was startled. And the merchant said, what do you mean? She said, I was surprised to see him in Baghdad because I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. You cannot escape death. It's coming. It's around the corner for all of us. Life is short when we think about it from that perspective. From eternity, our life is meaningless, pointless, small. When we look at it from death, it is the same way. Death not only is certain for us, it is and can be unexpected. It could happen at any moment. A Scottish pastor was concerned about a businessman in his community who was not saved, and so he would visit him often, telling him the gospel and trying to win him to Christ. And the man said, I'm not concerned about those things. I'm strong and I'm healthy. Why should I care about death at this point in my life? I'm too busy to think about those things. On and on, this went for months and years. Finally, the Scottish pastor got an idea and he just went to the man's office one day, unannounced, didn't call ahead, bust into the door, went past the secretary, opened the man's office door, and the man looked up, and was startled, and the pastor said, you didn't expect me, did you? And the man said, no, I didn't. And the pastor said, what if I had been death? And he turned around and walked out. That's all that man could think about the rest of that day. And on his way home that night, he stopped at the pastor's house to receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Death is unexpected. It can come at any moment, and it can come in any place. So if I am uh, short-lived and I have this experience of eternity causing my life to be minimal and death causing my life to be short or even cut short, what can I do? you got two choices. David mentions them here for us. You can live for yourself, which is hopelessness, or you can live for God, which is hopeful. Amen? Let's look in verse 7. David says, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. David says, There's really nowhere else to put my hope except for in God. Oh, you can put your hope in your family. You can put your hope in friendships. You can put your hope in relationships. But guess what? Those are all temporary. And those are gifts, perhaps, but they can be taken from you. 
A relationship can be taken. A family member can be taken from you. All of those things can be taken from you. They're easily taken away. If I put my hope in the things of this world, what happens? They're all temporary. They will not satisfy me completely. You will be disappointed, the Bible teaches us, if I put my hope in the things of this world. But if I put my hope in God and the promises of God, I will never be disappointed. And we all say amen to that, right? We all can say amen. Oh, I agree with you, Brother Clay. I put my hope in, my prom- in God and His promises. Well, here's, here's the issue with that. Many Christians agree with that thinking, but many Christians drift away from that living. Many Christians end up putting their hope and pursuits in other things other than the kingdom of God. Oh, you come to church and you pray. You might even give of a tithe. But the real driving force in your life is your comfort and your retirement and your bank account and what you're going to leave for your family when you get old and die. And so that becomes the driving force in your life. And it begins to consume you, your financial security. Oh, you love the Lord. You, you want to serve Him. But you work long, hard hours to get ahead so that you can amass these things in your life. And you really have little thought about getting the gospel out to the lost and the undone in your community in your state, in your nation, in your world, because you are committed to your security more than you're committed to God. You're busy, but you're busy about your success instead of the success of the kingdom. Other Christians agree with the philosophy of believing and trusting in the promises of God, and yet they pursue pleasure above the kingdom work. They pursue things that are causing them enjoyment. They, they pursue the easy part of life and the fun part of life. Oh, they are committed, but they're not committed to serve the Lord. They're committed to their pleasure, but they're not committed to the kingdom. And so the church suffers because of a lack of faithful workers. You see how this all works? We can say we agree but it's really what we do with our life. Am I living it towards myself or am I living it towards Him? What about those who uh, give lip service to the Lord, but their heart is toward their own pleasure? You know, there are families that come and visit, and, and, and it's important. We need to love our family and take care of our family, but if my family takes me away from church because they're visiting then what am I telling my family? That my time with you is more important than my time with Him. What is an hour out of your visit from a family to go to church or, heaven forbid, bring them with you? Amen. What are you showing them? What are you teaching them? What do you teach your children when people show up and you don't go to church? You're teaching your kids that family's more important than God. And I'm not coming down on anyone particular. I'm just wanting you to think about this. Am I really committed to Him and to live for Him? Or am I committed to my family? 
or they are more important to my pleasure and does it take first place? How about to my security financially? Am I moving that into a place in my life that is unsurpassed? So there's a lot of things that happen. The solution, don't be enthroned or, uh, or infatuated with your uh, worldly desires. That's not the answer. You can't consciously get rid of you looking for pleasure. You can't consciously get rid of of putting your family aside to go to church. You can't consciously set aside your financial gain and wealth to pursue the things of God because it's just part of us. So here's the key or the answer to it. Instead of turning off your infatuation for those things, turn up your infatuation for God. Make Him the highest in your life. And guess what? When you do that, when you make God the highest in your life, all these other things will fall into place. He said that. Did He not? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things shall be added to your life. All these things will fall into place. Don't make family first. Don't make money first and don't make pleasure first. Make God first. And He'll give you all of those in a proper perspective that will enhance and bless your life even more than they do now. I know you feel guilty when we put God behind our finances, when we put God behind our family. I know that guilt comes. I know that that pain comes. Well, God says, get rid of that. Make me first. I'll take care of these for you but make me first. That's what the idea is, to make my life holy, to make my desires holy. Look what it says in verse 8. David writes, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. Who's the foolish there? The godless. The godless people who are ready to pounce on you at every turn because of the mistakes you've made or the mistakes that you're making in your life. Pursue holiness in my speech. Amen? That's one of the biggest drawbacks that we have is is we can't control our own tongue. We don't want God to look bad. David says in verse 1, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. He says I even went as far as not saying anything good. Because I was so afraid of saying something bad that would give them ammunition against you, God. And God says, that's not the approach I want you to take, David. I want you to be holy before me. And it begins with your mouth. Clean up your mouth. Clean up what you say and how you say it and who you say it to. Clean up your speech. James tells us, In chapter 3, look at this on the screen. For we all stumble in many ways. If any man does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. James says we all stumble with our mouth. So God is telling us here this morning, let's clean that up. James goes on to say in verse 8 of the same chapter, but no one can tame the tongue... It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. 
A poisonous tongue can destroy the lives of many people. It can destroy family. It can destroy an entire church. God says, make yourself holy in your speech. Amen? Let's work on that. Make myself holy also in my behavior. In verse 8 again, he does not want to do anything or cause anything to give, uh, uh, make a reproach against God. David wants to get rid of his transgressions. Sin begins on the thought level, right? You think it before you do it. You think it before you react. Jesus said it like this in Mark chapter 7 on the screen. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. The list must go on. And these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. It's my thought process that makes me initiate the sin in my life. When I think it, when I dwell on it in my mind. That's why Paul tells us to take every thought captive to Christ. Don't let it out before you take it to Him. Let Him deal with it. Let Him show you the way out. Let Him show you how to stop. Let Him show you how to overcome. Amen? Deal with truth, with holiness in your desires, through your speech, and through your behavior. Mark gives us the negative side of that. Jesus also spoke about the positive side of dealing with our behavior. He said this, Blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There is no greater motivator in a human being than to be hungry and thirsty. You know that when you are hungry and thirsty, those are on your mind and you want to satisfy that longing that both of those present to you. So let me ask you this question. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Is it motivating you as much as Jesus described it there in the Sermon on the Mount to hunger and and thirst for being righteous, for being holy, for being distinct, for being a unique individual in your community, perhaps even in your family. Sadly, most Christians don't recognize the need for holiness in our lives. We go on going to church and doing the church thing, but outside these walls, our life changes a little bit. And our language changes a little bit. And our behavior changes a little bit. And our social media stuff changes a little bit. And we're not really hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We're hungering and thirsting for attention. And for fulfillment. If I just described you, that's good. Because you can fix it. You can change it today. You want to be right with God, but you don't know how to do it. How do I develop this thirst for hunger and righteousness? I mean, for thirst for uh, righteousness and this hunger for righteousness. How do I develop that? Let's look in verse 9. 
David shows us how. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand. I am perishing with reproofs. You chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. David says that the trials that we face are perhaps because of our lack of holiness. And so God is teaching us. He wants us to examine ourselves. Notice in verse 11, he says, You consume as a moth what is precious to man. That's cruel that God would consume what is precious to you. Is it not? Doesn't that sound mean? That you have things in your life that are precious to you and God consumes them like a moth. Why does he say that? I'll tell you why. Because the things you hold precious to you are not precious to God. The things you hold precious to you are keeping you from God. And God will consume those things in your life so that he can have you. There's nothing more in this world that God wants than you. Your heart. Not your money. Not your beautiful voice. Not your eloquent prayers. Not your ability to teach or preach or lead or follow. God wants you just like you are. And he will consume the things in your life that are precious to you until you surrender to him. Praise the Lord for what he's doing. Counting the wrong things as precious as what we're doing. It's not God that's precious to us. It's the other things. David makes a final plea here of mixed emotions. In verse 11, he says, I want to submit to you. In verse 13, he says, turn your gaze away from me, God, so that I may smile again. When Jesus called Peter and the disciples to follow him, he got in a boat and they pushed it out away from the shore. He taught the people on the shore and then he told Peter, he said, throw your nets down into the water. Peter said, Lord, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. But because you asked me to, I'll do it. He threw them down. Guess what? They were so full, the boat began to sink. He called John and his brother to come out and help. Both boats so full, they begin to sink. And Peter recognizes something. <laughs> Duh. He falls on his face before Jesus and he says, depart from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. Don't let my life be a reproach to you, God. Get away from me so that people won't speak unkindly about you. Is that how you talk to Jesus? Or do you cuddle up with him with your sin in your back pocket and you just want him to love on you and hold you tight and make everything right? We ought to be following on our face as Peter did, and saying, depart from me, God, because I'm a sinner. And you know what he'll do? He'll pick you up. He'll cleanse you, wipe you off, put a new robe on you, a ring on your finger, sandals on your feet, and he'll send you on a path to righteousness. And David recognizes that right here. And he's calling for you and I to do the same, that we would surrender to the holiness of God in our life through our speech, and through our behavior. 
Don't rage at God when things don't go your way. Submit to His hand. Submit to the hand of God as He disciplines you and shows you what's going on in your life and why you're suffering these things. There is a plan behind it. There is a lesson in it. Let me ask you this. What if in 2022, you knew this was your last year on earth? You were going to die in 2022. How would you live 2022 different than you lived 2021? Oh, I could go on, couldn't I? I mean, we all would want to live differently. It would inspire us to live for the kingdom of God. It would inspire us to speak Jesus to every person we met. Isn't that what we're to do now? Not when I'm faced with death and the shortness of my life. I'm to do that now. I'm to do what He asked me to do today. Not when I'm faced with the shortness of my life. I'm to do it now. I'm to do it today. How do I know that I am living for the Lord? Let me ask you three questions. This will help you answer that question. Number one, what are your hopes? What are your hopes in your life? What do you have left? The time you have left, what do you hope for the most? God, that I would lead people to your kingdom. Or God, that I would amass wealth for my family when I pass and leave it behind. What do you hope for in your life? That helps you understand if you're living for God. Here's another one. What is your desire? What is your greatest desire in life right now? Is it this relationship that David mentions and has with the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it a relationship that's broken in your family? Or a relationship with a co-worker or a friend? If Jesus Christ is not the highest in your life, those relationships will remain broken until you make Him number one and He'll fix the rest of it. Amen? Don't pray for your friend to be changed. You pray for Jesus to be number one in your life, and guess what He'll do? He'll change you. And that friend that you're distraught with will see Jesus Christ in you, and that relationship will be healed. That's how that works. That's what God promises. First, what are my hopes? What are my desires? And the last question I want to ask you is, how do you respond to the hand of God on you? Do you kick and scream? Do you rebuke? Do you run away? Or do you fall face first before Him, begging for forgiveness and praying the prayer that David prayed in verse 4? Look at it with me. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how short-lived I am. Today you have a chance to say that to God, to make Him number one in your life, to live holy by your speech and your behavior, and God will take care of the rest. Let's pray. Father, bless this congregation this morning. Bless each person here as we have all pursued other things, Lord, in our life in the wrong way. Father, not to cause harm and destruction to you, certainly, but simply because we got our priorities out of order. 
Father, help us to see that you are the most important thing in our life. Our life has but days, months, weeks left. Help us all to live them for you, God, for your kingdom. We know what heaven's like. We know that you're preparing that place for us. Father, what we don't know is why we live like we're going to live forever when we know we're going to pass quickly. Help me to see that. Let me see the end so that I can live towards that goal with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.